Welcome to the Places Where We Go podcast. Hello, I'm Julie. And I'm Art. Join us as we share our travel stories. We'll tell you about where we've been, what we saw, and what we did. We're always looking for a bit of an adventure. Sometimes we travel far. Sometimes we explore the places close to our home. Wherever we go, we'll let you know about the highlights and top tips to help you plan your future adventures. This is the Places Where We Go podcast. We are joined today with our guest, Mr. Rupert Gray. As a libel and copyright lawyer, Mr. Gray has represented national papers, politicians, bankers, celebrities, and explorers. He serves on the board of a number of frontline charities in the arts, education, photography, and marine exploration. Armed with his Nikon FM2s, he has traveled on foot and horseback by a dugout canoe, by a dog sled, camel, elephant, bush plane, Land Rover, and a vintage Rolls Royce to the most wildest places on earth. His photographs have been exhibited in several countries, including Bangladesh, and his articles have been widely publicized. We welcome you today to our show, and thank you for being with us, Rupert. Thank you, Julie. I'm very glad to be here. So, Rupert, we recently had a chance to read through your book, Homage to Bangladesh, and it immediately brought back memories of my first introduction to the country, which is when I was a youngster and listened to the Benefit Concert recording, Concert for Bangladesh by George Harrison and Friends. Fast forwarding to today, we have a new lens by which to view the country. Your book, for starters, has absolutely stunning black and white photographs. And the very first quote in the book grabbed me from Henri Cartier-Bresson, who said, just think of your camera as a flamethrower. It's a lot more effective than bullets. So let's dive into uh, a discussion about Bangladesh. Tell us what prompted your first visit to the country. My wife, Jan, and I were uh, traveling for about six months. We took our children around the world um, when they were five, eight, and 11. This was 1992. And our last port of call was Bangladesh for no other reason than we had some very old friends who were working in one of the eight programs there, UNICEF, as I recall. And so we just said, let's join them on the way home without really knowing very much about Bangladesh. After a month there with the children, we were very blown away by the country, by the, the magic of the landscape, and by the sequence of events that happened down in the Sundarbans, where we went with our friends and, uh, and spent a week on a, a boat with the so-called self-styled king of the Sundarbans, who was actually a freedom fighter from the Bangladeshi War in 1971, which is a war that uh, A, gave birth to Bangladesh, and B, it has influenced and been a part of and uh, an intrinsic to the political history of the country ever since. And there we were with one of the leaders of the, of the freedom fighters during that war, hearing him with his election speeches. He was standing for parliament, and of course, it was all in Bangladesh. But we were with the photographer, Shahidul Alam, whose English was very fluent and is now a well-known figure in the human rights world. And so we became familiar with the history of Bangladesh, sort of right from the start. How can I say history? Familiar with the framework of what contemporary Bangladesh was then and then still is now. And that friendship with Shahidul was what drew me back when he started his photographic festival and his school of photography. And I, as a copyright lawyer and photographer, just got involved with that whole 
new landscape that Shahidul was was creating uh, and is still creating. Wow. What would you say on this trip that you've been on and the several others following that has been the most challenging aspect of Bangladesh? I think two things. Bangladesh is really well known. It's mainly known, at least in those days, certainly, for its poverty, for the floods, the famines, the desperation of their lives. Uh, While I didn't find that difficult in the ordinary sense of the word, I found it very compelling and I wanted to understand it more and I wanted to understand how that background informed the people that I was spending time with, which was young Bangladeshis, young photographers, most of whom had not been outside the country, but were looking, as it were, almost through Shahidul's eyes at what it is that Bangladesh could offer the rest of the world and what new movement, what new approach to photography and the reporting of political events that was at the heart of Shahidul's sort of way of doing things, is the way I'd put it. Yeah. And I just found that very compelling, both as a photographer and, uh, and as a lawyer, as a person who believed in human rights, and as a person who had a background in uh, I grew up in the shadow of the British Empire. Bangladesh, of course, was a part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was there during the war. And all of that came together in a sort of, wow, this is really compelling. I want to, I want to understand this and I want to, so far as I can as an outsider, uh, be a part of it. So one question I have, and this is something we experience sometimes when we travel, is in going to new places where you experience new cultures, different people, you can oftentimes come across aspects of life that collide with your personal understanding of the world. In your time in Bangladesh, did you find any of your experience that challenged your worldview, modified your worldview? That, how did that impact you personally in terms of just the way you understood other cultures? I think uh, pretty pretty radically is the answer to that. Uh, I mentioned my sort of background in the empire. I grew up at a... Uh, I was born the year after the war. So the schools I grew up in when I was educated in the private sector in Britain was very much dominated by the worldview that Britain was still a country with an empire, which indeed it was back in the, in the late 50s and early 60s when I was sort of coming of age. I, I didn't have a view that Britain was brilliant or that the empire was great. It was just there, and it was huge. It, the way we were taught history, we saw it as the major dominant influence in the world, which in its time, I think, is probably fair to say it was. And I think what I learned gradually of my time in Bangladesh is that there's another way of seeing the world, and the world from the point of view of young Bangladeshis who do nothing about all this because they weren't born at that time, and also a country who started in 1971, and Britain started in 1066. And so it was sort of... He was an, a really new nation, in a real sense of the word, one of the newest, I guess. And I remember reading what Kissinger said about Bangladesh. He described it in 1972. He was the American Secretary of State, and he described Bangladesh as an international basket case. And I looked around me and I thought, basket case? Where, where did he get that idea from? It was a problematic country. They had massive problems to deal with. And you could say, with some justification, that they weren't dealing with them very well in some ways. But the youth and the energy and the passion and the excitement of a new country building up was very infectious and still is. So I think it altered my view of, of history, really, and also my view of the subcontinent because I'd been to India a lot when I was younger. Okay. Uh, you know, I was on the original hippie trail. I'd been back with Jan. Um, we spent six months wandering through India in 1980 with our rucksacks. And suddenly, here I was, right at the heart of a nation that didn't know anything at all about all that. 
they were just young and, and they wanted to play their part in the way the world was reporting Bangladesh and the way the world was being reported in Bangladesh. And that was just very, very exciting and sort of full of moments of, okay, I see, there's a different way of looking at things. In your book, the pictures that depicted you with your family, especially your children, really caught me. What was that experience like for them at such a young age? And has it continued to affect their outlook on different cultures? Uh, the answer to that is yes, it has. The last part of the question, not uh, just in different cultures, but uh, in the way I think that they've lived their lives. Mm -hmm. And I got two sort of particular responses. One is that some years later, I had an exhibition in Christiansund in Norway, a photographic exhibition. Uh, and I included some of the pictures that are in the book of, of Bangladesh, I and mean, many others as well, but, that, but, but they were there. And I invited them to do the captions with no help from me. This is when they were, uh, this was 2007 or eight. So we're 20 years on. They're now adults earning their living um, in their different fields. And I said, write the captions as you remember that scene. And they were familiar with the images because they'd been around as black and white prints lying about at home. And I have a darkroom here. And they wrote all the captions. And the one they wrote about, there's a picture in the book of a man with a child with very thin legs. Um, he's smiling down at the child. And it's a visible testament to poverty and the love of a father to his child in the context of being very poor. No different, actually, from being very rich, but it's a rather different framework. And what she said about that, whichever one wrote the caption, I forget which one it was now, uh, that in order to come to terms with the poverty, they, they came to us and said, Dad, we want some money, Dad and Mum. We want, we want to give some money to these people with no money. And we're talking about pretty desperate uh, people, some of whom had been deformed in the way that tragically does happen um, in the subcontinent. And they said, we will decide who deserves most. And we left them to it. We were around, we obviously didn't let them out in that kind of situation, let them away from us. But they decided where the priorities were uh, according to their perceptions of poverty. And, and I'm not saying that was right or wrong on their part, mm -hmm. but what was interesting was that that's what they remembered, that they had to, to deal with those issues very directly and very personally. Mm -hmm. And that's what they remembered, that's what went in the caption. And indeed, I touched on that in a very brief way in the caption under that photograph in the book. Yeah. The other sort of illustration of the point is that um, one of our daughters um, has become quite a, who's a professor of theology at Durham now, Durham University here in Britain. Um, and, she, uh, and in that context, she has become quite a well-known public speaker, speaker in the public square on issues surrounding climate change and the theology and philosophy that needs to underpin how we deal with those things. Mm -hmm. What it is about our values that has failed to deal with it so far, climate change. Uh, you have poverty as well, but she's actually, her uh, brief is climate change. And she, in that capacity, she gave a lecture at the Royal Geographical Society, which you're probably familiar with, which is our, our foremost geographical professional body in Britain, which I've been involved with them for a very long time. Uh, I was their lawyer for many years. And they asked Carly to give a, a, a speech entitled, So What's Philosophy Got to Do With It? That's, that was the whole it, of course, in this case, being climate change. And she opened her lecture after being introduced by the director, who's a marvellous man, Joe Smith, Professor Joe Smith. And she used the picture, not funnily, one of the Bangladeshi pictures was used, but the picture that came up first was uh, one of, which is not in the book, of her as a child of two, walking down a mud track road in, uh, in Borneo, surrounded by a totally destroyed rainforest, just flattened. 
in the way that happens with the big logging. It's a, a picture of devastation, in the middle of which is this tiny child, almost stumbling, as tiny children do, down this mud road with rocks and broken trees. But you use it to illustrate the point that this was the kind of situation that formed a view of the world. Now, she was only two, she can't remember the incident, but the image conveys to her how she saw the world when she was young, and she went on to describe how her worldview was changed by that and later experiences in terms of a natural world. Yeah, wonderful, yeah. I could generalize lots about that question, but I think those two points are a, a clear illustration of the reality of the impact that early experiences make on a child's life. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely lessons that uh, can be taken away. There's so many rich stories that come through your book even just solely through the breadth of the photographs. There's one section of the book that I did, did want to read just a, a paragraph. So there's a section that talks about Victory Day in December 16th, 1971, in which the book states, 93,000 Pakistani troops surrendered to the Bangladeshi Liberation Forces. It was and remains the largest surrender of armed forces since the Second World War. The war was one of the most violent of the 20th century. Among the Western photographers who covered the war was a young David Burnett, now one of the world's most respected photojournalists. David has reminded us, directly and graphically, of the power of the camera and the role of the photojournalist to inform national leaders of the consequences of their decisions and the injustices over which they preside and to likewise inform those they represent so that by public protest and through the ballot box, they can have a voice in what sort of world they want to live in. So reflecting on that part of the book, how has the power of photography influenced culture and change in Bangladesh? The photographs of the 71 war is a complicated story. They are politically very, very powerful in a, almost a party political framework. The party that owns the history of the, of the 71 war and interprets it, stands behind it, adopts it, uses it, is hugely powerful. And it's that, that story, that history, that they want to ally themselves with as the leading party and during that, those times of crisis is represented through and translated by images. And the images were taken, there was about, I mean, historians will probably pick me up on this, there must have been about 15 to 20 well-known names, photographic names, so if they weren't well-known then, they became later, David Burnett was one of them, that captured those images. About half were Bangladeshi, and the other half, uh, so often is the case, came from the West. There were eight magnum photographers covering the war, including, instantly Don McCullen, who's now one of our, probably our most prominent war photography name in Britain. And in fact, he didn't get to take any of the great pictures because he got malaria quite early on in the war. Uh, I speak from memory. But the greatest photo photographer, I think, of the war was a chap called, oh God, I'm going to forget his name, uh, Radu. Apologies. I'll have to come back to you on that. And he had an exhibition which mounted by Shahidul, my, my friend there, through his agency, Drick. Uh, this, these Bangladeshi photographers, images of the 71 war, Many of them never been seen because they were so explosive in terms of revealing war crimes mm -hmm. that he had to wait 40 years. They were just too dangerous. And it was an absolutely brilliant exhibition. And one of the photographs in the book is of a curator, an Indian curator called Inipuri, walking into the exhibition. Beside her as she walks is the image of a severed head 
from the killing field that I referred to in the book there. And I think that the one you just read may well have been the caption to that image or associated with it. And so the power of those images is still very much alive today. And if you look back on so much of the photographs of war in the 20th century, they have they've changed the landscape. Take the Nick Hughes photograph of the Vietnamese girl child screaming down the road with napalm on her back, stark naked. Yeah. That is credited by many people as being the image that brought the Vietnam War ultimately to an end. Yeah. Mm. And as a, a, a photographer who defends the rights, particularly of the Magnum photographers, I was Magnum's lawyer for, for many, many years. And when their images were used in a way they didn't want them used, they didn't, of course, a fuss. And I was the person who caused the fuss, as it were, for them. Uh, people like Jones Griffiths, for example, uh, Mark Raboud. And I think Mark Raboud was another photographer in the 71 war. Jones Griffiths wasn't, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the power of the images uh, taken by photographers of that status, and Magnum, of course, is not the only agency. There's lots of amazing agencies. Uh, it was founded by Cartier-Bresson, as you probably know. And I think they've had an immense impact on the way we see history, and that in turn has an impact on the way we see the future. Yeah. You've mentioned several times your friend Shadul Alam, And that's an individual who spent 101 days in jail for criticizing the Bangladeshi government, ultimately freed after international protests, became Time Magazine's Person of the Year in 2018. And upon that event, the magazine's headline read, Journalism is under threat. Inside is a journalist's dangerous journey from photographer to prisoner. Can you reflect on the challenges faced by photographers who seek to uncover truths as they see them through their lens? Very much so. I mean, this is the, uh, the story of photography worldwide, actually, with just the story of reportage photography in the context of conflict. And uh, many photographers have disappeared, mm-hmm. have been killed outright. Shadow's been shot at it two or three times. and he, That night he was abducted. A lot of us thought we won't be seeing him again. And if it wasn't for the, the huge worldwide reaction, orchestrated mainly by um, uh, Ranema, his partner, who's a powerhouse, <laughs> he'd still be in jail, I think, if he was alive at all. Many people have disappeared in Bangladesh. There's no two ways of getting around that. But not just in Bangladesh, in so many countries. Photography of conflict is a dangerous business. Partly because a lot of people don't want you to be there photographing it, and if you have got there and taken them, they don't want you publishing them. But also because it's an inherently dangerous place to be, I and mean, bullets are flying around everywhere. So I have always hugely respected the photographers who've got out there to bring us back the truth of what's really happening, or at least the truth is represented by their lens, by their camera, by their vision of the world. Mm-hmm. And I trust their vision in many cases, more than I trust the vision of the politicians who created and perpetrated and continue with the conflict. Sure. Rupert, can you reflect a little bit on the values and the culture of Bangladesh as you understood it through your experience? And also, what are the biggest misconceptions people have about Bangladesh? I'll take the second one first, okay. Julie, and then pick me up on what I don't cover in relation to the first. All righty. I mentioned right at the start uh, the business of poverty, or you raised, the, you raised the question that led to that. And I think that's how people have seen Bangladesh. It's uh, the basket case approach that Kissinger adopted. I mean, in a way, understandably, because there was no government, there was no parliament, there were no buildings, there was no departments of education. It was a country with, with nothing, no infrastructure. What Bangladesh has done is to create a real country that's working, 
with all its difficulties and all its political, uh, its lack of political freedoms, um, it is a country that's working. And, and gradually, the economy is turning it into a, a middle-income country. It'll be a middle-income country within 10 years, maybe 15. Wow. And I think that is a totally different perception of how people still see Bangladesh, which is shrouded in poverty, uh, in permanent floods, in famine, and disease. And that's how we, we've all seen it. That's how it's been portrayed by the Western media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, what Scheidel said to me on that boat back in 1992 is that Bangladesh needs to play a part in how the message of what it is and what it's like to be in Bangladesh and be a Bangladeshi needs to be contributed to at the very least by Bangladeshi photographers. It was that conversation that made me think, aha, I'd never seen it like that. And then, sorry, following on slightly from that, it was another 10 years before I heard from him again. I think we probably kept in touch, but this is pre-email, pre-digital cameras. And in 2004, three, I got an invitation from the British Council to go back and give a lecture on, uh, to the British Council, to their particular public in, in Dhaka, on international law of copyright, which I'm not really an expert in, but I became it for, the, for that purpose. And, of course, behind that request was Shahidul. I don't think I knew that at the time. Mm-hmm. And it came through a wonderful woman called Brett Rogers, who was then the key figure for Southeast Asia um, at the British Council, and later became the director of the Photographers Gallery, which I've been working with for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. And by then, Shadul had founded Pachala, the School of Photography, had founded Cherry Miller, the great festival of photography, and his agency, Drake, was some um, getting an international status, which indeed it now has. He once wrote to the World Press organization, which is a, probably the most powerful organization in the world when it comes to uh, reportage photography, uh, the World Press Awards. And he just wrote, in Shadow's wonderful way, he said, why are you ignoring Bangladesh? Why don't you have a World Press exhibition and run the competition from Dhaka, which is a, a place, it's always impossible to organize anything because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's such a difficult uh, place in the logistical terms. But you just do it. And he just did it. And there was um, uh, not that long ago, was the first World Press exhibition in Drick, in the the agency's building in Dhaka. And Shadul was the the chairman of the international jury to make the World Press Awards. And many of them been won by Bangladeshi photographers who were basically trained by Shadul and the other marvellous people who teach photography in Bangladesh. It's a very inspiring story. Yeah. Wonderful. We always find it so encouraging to hear stories like that where people have a vision and through their dedication and their focus make the uh, seemingly impossible become reality. And so the, that's a great example of yeah. that. No, uh, you're so right. Spot on on that. It's, a, it's a, such a gift. Yes, Absolutely. At this juncture, you know, we, we spent a little bit of time speaking about the history of Bangladesh, the experiences that you had that influenced the photographs in your book. We'd like to now shift a little bit into the, I'm going I'm to call it travel aspects about Bangladesh. So as we are a travel podcast, we want to, you know, mm-hmm. get into that lens a little bit. Mm-hmm. And why don't we start with one of the things that, most people experience when they travel to a new place, and that would be the cuisine and the food culture. So tell us a little bit about how that experience was for you. It's, um, it's another country, another cuisine. And uh, if you go with expectations of having what you normally have, you're probably not going to the right country. Uh, back when I started, there, I think there was then, there was one international hotel in Dhaka. 
There was no other European place to eat at all. And it was right the other side of Dhaka. It took three hours to get there because the traffic in Dhaka um, makes London look like a freeway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mainly rickshaws. At least it then was mainly rickshaws. So you just get used to eating in local food and local places, street stalls. And, uh, and of course, the other marvellous thing is, which uh, I guess people don't find terribly easy, there's no alcohol in Bangladesh. Oh, interesting. It's a dry country. Okay. You can get it in the posh hotels. And now, of course, there's, I don't know how many, not that many, maybe a dozen, maybe more. And you can get it there and you pay through the nose for it. Uh, but in downtown, as it were, uh, once you're away from the Western uh, sector, there's no alcohol. Yeah. Did you find the food there to be primarily vegetables, starches, less meat? Or I mean, I'm thinking about like the poverty in the country. And or... Probably slightly less emphasis on meat than us, but it was always there. Okay. Uh, it was always hot. It was served in marvellous sort of those, those shiny sort of aluminium tin dishes, which I associate so much with Bangladesh. I mean, that, of course, there are lots of other places too. And my, my favourite time is always breakfast, uh, partly because I love, I love a good chilli omelette. And oftentimes there's one place I always stay, which is a real local place where photographers and Europeans uh, working in the aid programmes tend to gather. And it's also a gathering place for Bangladeshis because the garden is a place where you meet. Okay. And in fact, it was, ironically, the place where Charlotte was arrested. Anyway, but this, I was going to go back to the street stalls. When I'm out uh, in the early mornings, out photographing or down in Old Dhaka, which is a, a place that's not like anywhere else in the world, it's uh, chili omelets, a roti and tea in the street stalls, sitting on a bench with a whole lot of Bangladeshis talking away and nobody really caring whether you're white, black or pink. Uh, just, just such, I, I love all that. It's, I feel at home there. Yeah. I could go for a chili omelet for yes. sure. Yes. So for somebody that is interested in visiting Bangladesh or an area around it, what kind of tips would you give them as a tourist in Bangladesh? I would say leave behind all your previous expectations of, of Western-style traveling and be ready to deal with the unexpected a, a lot. I advise them to travel by rickshaw because that's the way you meet the local people. Uh, it looks pretty risky. Perhaps it is a bit risky, but I wouldn't travel any other way. I mean, occasionally you need a cab if you're going a long way. I'd advise getting onto the rivers, the river boats down the Buriganga, take you down to the Sundarbans. I've been up to the north of Sulet a few times. So there's some good walking up there. But you tend once you're out of Dhaka, you tend to be in the Western framework. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's some marvelous places to stay. But for me, it's the... The rickshaws and the street stalls of, uh, of Old Dhaka, where the magic is, and the marketplaces and the, um, uh, the bicycle repair shops and, and the little independent traders still hanging about in forgotten corners of ruined palaces, making whatever they're making. It's, you just feel that real life is going on there. I, my guess is it's changing fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think if you want to experience what the subcontinent, to get a slight flavor of what it was like, Back in the early 20th century, Bangladesh is the place to go. I imagine that the country of Bangladesh is not a place that shows up on most tourist lists of places that they think of as a destination. Given your experience in the country, your time there, your travel there, what would you say to somebody to have them think about a reason why they might want to go to Bangladesh? It's an exceptionally beautiful landscape and i say that because most people tend to see flat landscapes as less interesting than mountainous landscapes and indeed uh, i've always been of that persuasion myself as a matter of fact but there's something about the 
the flat landscape of Bangladesh and its colours and its huge skies, which appealed to me uh, more than I expected, because I've always been a bit of a mountain man. And the, I mean, it's a silly thing to say because everybody says it about everywhere they go. But I've always found the Bangladeshis to be so open and, and, and friendly to strangers. That's so true in so many parts of the world, uh, even in Britain sometimes. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't say that, that it's anyway exceptional, but it is that nonetheless. And I, to me, traveling by river has always had a magic to it. And I think mm-hmm. if I was young now I'd, uh, and I wanted to have an adventure, I think I'd get to the Buriganga, find a young chap with a boat and see how far you get. Yeah. One of the dreams I always had was, as a good friend of mine who has a, a wonderful resort, as he calls it, in, um, near Salette, just by the border, just under the Megalayan Hills. They sweep down um, uh, onto his uh, land and his resort there. And he and I hatched a plot. Uh, to, um, to he has a, several boats to sail from Silet to Dhaka in the monsoon season. You can almost go in a straight line because everywhere's flooded. And oh, I just thought that'd well. be so romantic, but it, so far it hasn't happened. Oh, okay. So you're talking about some of the dreams that you've had. Is there other places that you haven't been to that you dream to visit? I think probably, Julie, it's the places I go want. I want to go back to that I now dream about. And that's partly a function of being the, the rather advanced age that I now am. But it's also a function of I know where the good places are. And because I've only got X years left, I want to be certain I'm going to go to the good places. And I know what I've not seen in the good places. Mm-hmm. So, for example, taking Bangladesh, there's a, a wonderful old ruined Zamindar Palace in the heart of old Dhaka, uh, which has been the meeting place for intellectuals and artists and poets, of which there are many of in Bangladesh because it's such an ancient culture. And it's where historically they've gathered and uh, uh, it serves very good Bangladeshi food in the said aluminium tin mugs and plates and it's dirt floors and they've got little bedrooms up in on ancient balconies. And I just want to go back there and, and, and write for a month and slip out of the street stores whenever I want a cup of tea. Mm, sounds wonderful. So that'd be Bangladesh. Uh, Canada's very high on my list, the west coast of Canada. Uh, I've been there many times. Uh, I worked there when I was younger. And I think of it a lot now. It's been gradually burnt up in these wildfires in the news yesterday, this morning. But the west coast of Canada, which I've sailed down and been and uh, worked sort of in the interior mm-hmm. and uh, walked through that country, that would be a place to go back to. And uh, there are lots of others. New Zealand, um, uh, Himalayas, Assam. I'd happily take a walk from the Brahmaputra up to the Chinese border. That's something I'm toying with a bit at the moment. Wow. Uh, very, nobody goes up there. Assam is a country that people don't go to because it's driven by conflict, yeah. uh-huh. particularly at the moment. But we drove there in our old roles. And I really wanted to go up there, but we didn't have time. Uh, so there's lots of places like that that I would go back to. There are various so places we stayed or houses we saw, maybe didn't stay in, that I sort of noted at the time thinking, I want to come and spend time here, in this place, by this field, under this landscape, under this sun. And there wasn't time because we had deadlines or flights or whatever it was, friends to meet. But quite a few of those in different parts of the world, I've just noted down and thought, if ever I can get back there, I will. Fiji. Mm. I worked in Fiji for a couple of years when I was young, year and a half. I've been back there quite a few times since. And there's one particular cabin in Taviuni, the so-called Garden Island. I just want to be there uh, and swim and enjoy the palm trees and read and write. Like Somerset Maugham, with his, um, he traveled for a good part of his life through, these, through Southeast Asia, just writing, staying in places for two months and writing. 
and uh, I'm a great fan of his. I mean, he's not very fashionable anymore, but he he had quite an influence on my view of the world. Well, we hope you get to uh, many of those places. We have not been to Bangladesh, but in going through your book and especially looking at the, and I can't stress to the listeners enough how stunning the photographs are. It gives us a little bit of a sense of, you know, that, that look into a place that we have not been to. On that note, do you have any personal reflections on how photography can be used to transport people to new places? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, how it can be used? Um, I'm tempted to say that one of my problems with photography in the digital age is that it is so prolific and so, I was going to say overdone, but I'll overuse it. I don't really mean that. It doesn't have about it that sense to me, that sense of place, uh, that the analog photographs that you tend to find in old archives. Mm-hmm. I've struggled to, to pin down why. Uh, and it's something to do with the fact uh, that with a digital camera, you can just take 500 photographs. One of them is bound to be good. You're never going to have time to look at them all. They all eventually get lost in some digital lost world that happens up in the sky. And unless you take it seriously, what it is that says what you feel about a place or feel about that scene or that person, uh, then there's no point in having taken them in the first place. And I found that particularly selecting the photographs for this book, I have about, I never counted them up. I probably had 30,000 images from Bangladesh taken over 30 years. Wow. And I knew there was not going to be a room for more than 80. And they're all sitting there as negatives. And I got some prints that I uh, made in my darkroom at the time, but I, I didn't necessarily choose the best ones. I didn't in those days have a very good device for deciding which were the best ones. And there's no time to look at every single one through the darkroom lens. So this time I started again. And I thought long and hard about what it is a photograph said that mattered to a viewer, or possibly just mattered to me, and therefore with luck to the viewer. Mm-hmm. And it gradually became clear to me that, that you had to look carefully at what an image said what it conveyed why that image makes you say oh god i want i wish i'd been there uh, uh, i want to go back there i want to meet that person i want to understand that why that person looks to that person in this way and i think if photography is going to be a force for good the process of editing let alone the process of taking uh, needs to be approached with real care and consideration as to what it is you're trying to say mm-hmm. and does the photograph say it yeah mm-hmm. and if it doesn't move on to the next one yeah. yeah, and that's one of the reflections I think I have when looking at the photographs in your book is almost to a photograph, they each made us stop and pause and ask ourselves, what is the photo saying? Because it wasn't just a collection of a random assortment of 1,000 photos that somebody took on a digital yeah. camera. Yeah, we weren't flipping through and, and just moving on. It was like we would stop and take a look at photos that caught us. And it did. It drew me in to Bangladesh. It was one of those things where it's like, wow, to have been there, how amazing that would have been. But you know, I'm so pleased you say that. That's really, I love hearing that. I mean, that's, that's actually why one does it, at least in part. You do it because you have to do it because you want to do it. Yeah. But you also do it for others. And of course, in the process of, so interesting you say that, as I was assembling it, friends would come and stay um, uh, and I'd be on the screen and they'd come and see what I was up to. And a lot of my friends, of course, are, they're not, they're not necessarily photographers, but they're in the, the same cultural standpoint that Jan and I are. And to get their reaction to the ones I'd chosen was so interesting. And some would say, I don't, why bother with that one? That, that, that doesn't say anything. And, uh, that I think, well, maybe I need to look at that. And actually, maybe I, I don't agree. So it's in the book. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. And maybe I thought, 
okay, let's see, let's see if I can find something that says it better. And the process was so exciting. So uh, if it works like that, that's um, that's magical. Because I I'm I'm going to start working on a, on another another one soon. Wonderful. Oh, I've also got another quarter of a million images. What the hell am I going to do with all that? Lot? I have no idea. And of course, when you're dead, nobody knows what they are yeah. unless you've captioned them, selected them, and, and properly made them ready for an archive, made them ready for the future. It's interesting because I think in this digital photography age that we live in, perhaps one of the things that makes your photographs stand out is they were not taken in the modern medium. You use black and white, you used film. And I, I think sometimes, you know, when people, when artists use an analog methodology versus our digital methodologies, it modifies the approach of the product of the art. Again, so much richness with your photographs. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of your equipment, your camera, your lenses, and why you choose to shoot in black and white? Uh, thank you. That's another um, good question. Why, why black and white? The word that springs to mind uh, is discipline. There's something about black and white. You, you, you don't have the luxury of color to add to the power of the image. You only have two colors, or at least many, many shades mm -hmm. of two colors. And I quite like that. I think I was influenced by the photographs that made an impact on my landscape. And I realized quite early, of course, I started off like all young men and uh, women in uh, 1960, was, of, of course, you had color film. I mean, why wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, with those old, wonderful Duoflex cameras. And a lot of my sort of early young person photographies, photographs are all little two-inch square prints in rather faded color. Uh, they have their own appeal, actually. But it was when I got, the first time I used black and white, I wish I could remember now what trick it did, was in Australia. And I was working out in the great sandy desert on an oil crew. God, I'm embarrassed to say that now. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, and for some reason, I, I took black and white. Maybe I couldn't get any color. <laughs> I can't remember now. But um, funny, one just flashed up my screen now on my rolling desktop. And I photographed all these wild characters in the great sandy desert. They've been out, we've been there, we're there for three months, men only, 30 of us in this tent, 600 miles from the nearest other human being. They're so great pictures. I mean, they're not very good quality, but they, the atmosphere they create. And I realized, I think after that, the black and white was something I was going to be wedded to. So that's the black and white answer. Uh, in terms of equipment, I'll come back to the first part of your question. Ever since 1982, I've worked with FM2s. Uh, and they were given to me by Keith Johnson Photographic, who were then the, the big player in the camera retail market, because I was going to photograph an expedition to um, put up a cross to the explorer who died in Greenland in uh, 1932, 50 years before. And it was a bunch of young, international crew, actually, but it was the British Schools Exploring Society. And they wanted me to teach photography to the youngsters uh, and to be the expedition photographer. And so Keith Johnson gave me these two cameras. And they gave me three lenses, uh, 135, uh, an 85, and a 50. I realized early on that what I really wanted was a 28, so I went and bought a 28mm lens. To an ordinary, ordinary 28mm lens. And I gradually came to realize that the 135 was, uh, I didn't use it very much. I'm not a wildlife photographer particularly. I've done it, but it's not something I major in. There's too many other good ones around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I now go standardly out with my 85 and my 28. And if I've only got, with a, with a camera for each one, and sometimes a third body to have a different speed of film. And if I can only take one camera, it's a 28 mil. Okay. That is the, the ultimate lens. And still film-based? 
Oh yes, I have a I have a digital, which uh, I've got a quite a good digital. Uh, most of my friends said you got to get a really good digital camera. You know, you're a good photographer. Uh, how could you not? And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go and buy one, and, um, and I did. And after I figured out how to work it, which took me about a year, <laughs> <laughs> and even then it still sort of went wrong. And I thought, God, what do I do next? And I just suddenly thought, why am I doing this? Uh-huh. And I went back to film. And I still use my digital. I have one in this house and one in our other house, 100 yards away. So there's one camera everywhere just in case I need it quick. Perfect. And uh, uh, so that, that's the equipment story. I used a, a motor drive when I covered the Iditarod dog race in Alaska once. And uh, that was a bit of a pain in the ass. I guess, I guess it must have taken some good pictures, but I, I didn't particularly enjoy it. And I just, I just liked the idea of the discipline of you've got 36 frames. Don't waste a single one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think right there, maybe that's one of the things that makes a big difference between the analog world and the digital world. In the digital world, yeah, you can, you can do whatever you want, doesn't matter. But when you're limited to 36 shots you, and they cost money, you need to think about it. Yeah. yeah. No, you're spot on. Spot on. So, Rupert, we so enjoy talking to you. Your your life has been so interesting. And I, you even had some uh, films that you were in that we noticed that you did. in uh, Back in 79, you were in the Blue Lagoon. Oh, that... <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, you're an actor on top of everything else. So we're so impressed by you. All lawyers are actors. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. We want our listeners to know that how can they purchase your book? Uh, Julie, thank you. The best place is probably Amazon. Unicorn, you can buy it direct from the publishers from Unicorn. Uh, it's available in some bookshops. I'm slightly not up to date about which bookshops have it. Uh, but uh, the easiest thing for, for listeners is going to be um, Amazon. Amazon, okay. Uh, uh, and the book's there, and uh, they haven't run out yet, sadly, as far as okay. I know. Right. Okay. <laughs> we'll see if we can help to change that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any other information you want to share in terms of how people follow your work? You haven't mentioned the, the film about our journey across India. And I think, I think some of your listeners m- might enjoy that. And it's available on Netflix. Well, sorry, Netflix Europe. Okay. Uh, okay. It's not so far available in uh, the States. But uh, rumor has it it's available on YouTube. I've never, never tried to find it. We have a VPN, so we can pretend we're in Europe. So we're going yes, to try. We we're going to try that this weekend. Exactly. You don't know about the about the film Art and Julie? Romantic Road in yeah. 2017. The executive producer was Sharon Stone. Indeed. Yes. Indeed, she was. So yes. So it is, says it is available on Netflix. It sort of seems to be sort of growing in popularity. I think they call it a sleeper hit because it's not. You know, there's no big stars in it, and it's not a great drama. It's just a documentary uh-huh. uh, but when people watch it they seem to quite like it we will definitely watch it yeah and yes. encourage our listeners to do the same yes yeah. it ends up of course in bangladesh which is uh, the reason for the reason it's relevant because uh, we get to bangladesh we get stopped at the border um, because it, uh, they don't like british cars in bangladesh so we had a little um, discussion to have with we went down to see the minister for finance whatever it was and he very kindly let us in and it led the procession at the next Cherry Mellor Festival. And we were sort of guests of honour for the festival. And Shahidul sat on the roof. And so there was this great figure in the human rights movement sitting on a car that's the very symbol of wealth and privilege. Uh, right, right. And it's just a marvellous combination of, you know, how did that happen? Moment. And Shahidul's very, Shahidul's in the film quite a bit. Yeah. And he's very articulate about this 
crossing her borders, crossing her boundaries, making boundaries seem irrelevant, make, making them irrelevant. Boundaries between nations, boundaries between rich and poor, all these artificial barriers we put up which guide and inform our lives. Mm-hmm. And actually, most of them are ephemeral uh, uh, or in our imagination. Yeah. yeah, great, wonderful. I'm glad you mentioned that. So it, it's a good moment in the film. Yes, so we will put that in our show notes for you. We will, yep. So, Rupert, thank you so much for joining us. We so much appreciated the discussion, hearing about your adventures in Bangladesh, and sharing the story that you brought to life in your book, Homage to Bangladesh. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you both. And I'm very, I'm very glad you've taken an interest in the book. Thanks again so much. If you have any comments or information to share with us about travel, you can write to us at comments at theplaceswherewego.com. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Instagram as The Places Where We Go. You can find us on Twitter as The Places Where One, the number one. And you can watch our travel adventures on YouTube, where our channel name is The Places Where We Go. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you at The Places Where We Go. See you next time. Bye now.